would ask you to open your Bible to Psalm 63. I'm going to take a short break from our study of Galatians this morning. And I want to speak specifically about the responsibilities of fatherhood, but I don't want any of you in the room to tune me out. I know you're not all fathers. The psalm that we're going to look at will make application of itself to us all. And outside of the few words of introduction that I speak directly addressing fathers, then this psalm is for all of us. I want to speak about these responsibilities in a way that you know that I am aware of my own weakness. And you need to know that I have failed often in the things that I will speak to you about. So I am thankful that there is grace to be found in the Lord. And I realize that it pleases him very often to give us and help us be repentant in these areas where we fail. I'm going to speak about these things realizing my own dependence on the Lord to fulfill them. Recognizing that that same help is available to you all as well. I'm sharing these things with you as one who has seen in the scriptures the high calling and responsibility given to a father or to any man who has a place of influence in a young person's life. A few times over the course of the last year or year and a half, I've been involved in this conversation and I suppose that maybe you all have had it as well to some degree or another. I've been posed the question, the question goes something like this, should Christian couples continue to have and raise children given the culture we find ourselves in? It's a fair question. It deserves a fair and honest biblical answer. Lord willing, we'll give it that answer this morning. The culture we live in is growing increasingly loud in living out its godlessness. The godlessness that defines it. Increasingly loud to the point that the perversion of God's design is increasingly accepted as the norm. And any speech contradicting this supposed norm is deemed as hateful or bigoted. And there are, of course, numerous other issues than just this one, but it's, a, it's the most prevalent. But I want you to see with me that this question, whether to have and raise children in this culture, is an American Christian question. It's an American Christian question because our brothers and sisters all over the world have known the same kinds of pressures, have lived under the same godless influence for centuries. And so now that we begin to feel a little bit of the, the squeeze of ungodly society and now ungodly Government that our brothers and sisters have known for centuries, we begin to question the validity of whether or not to bring children up in this kind of society. 
to give you a short answer to that question, should we? Yes. Now let me give you the longer answer. We are called to live in a way that is counter to the culture around us. You read through the Sermon on the Mount, you realize what you're reading there is counter-cultural Christianity. The things that Jesus was calling the people to there as he preached on the side of the mountain was to live separate from the society around them. He spoke in that Sermon on the Mount of two great metaphors of the Christian life, salt and light. These are engaging metaphors. Salt engages its surroundings. It doesn't lie dormant. Light engages its surroundings. It transforms darkness, even as salt transforms whatever it is applied to. We're called in the scriptures, even as we've been studying recently in the book of Galatians, to walk in the Spirit, to walk in step with the Spirit. But we realize that that has great consequence. Walking in the Spirit has great consequence. The consequence is that you will be walking out of step with those around you who are not your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Walking in step with the Spirit necessitates that we are walking counter to whatever is considered normal by an ungodly society. And so right at the beginning, we have a decision to make. Will we or won't we? Will we embrace this consequence of living counter to the culture around us or will we not? I want to speak particularly for just a few moments to the fathers in the room and to any of you men, regardless of your relationship to a child, whether it be grandparent, uncle, Friend, it should be our goal to raise our children in a biblical manner. And to a very large degree, we as fathers are responsible for the culture of our family. We're responsible to create in our homes a counter-cultural Christianity. We have great help, even great weapons. The gospel of Christ must permeate our homes. What do I mean by that? Please understand the way I use these words. Our homes must smell, taste, look, sound, and feel like the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel should engage all the senses of ourselves and our children, not just in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. The gospel must permeate your home. The Word of God must be open, it must be seen, it must be read, it must be studied. Prayer must not be a strange thing in our homes. Church life 
should dominate our calendars. All of these things begin with you as a father in your home. The responsibility is yours. We're responsible to set the tone for counter-cultural living and to bear the consequence of it, to be deemed odd or strange, that family down the road, who cares? So long as Christ is honored, so long as Christ is pleased, so long as we are living as salt and light in the world, so long as we are useful to the Savior, you realize that we are responsible And I realize that's a very strong word in the sentence that I'm about to use it in, so I may qualify it. We are responsible for the manliness of our sons and the femininity of our daughters. Now, let me qualify a few things. I realize God is sovereign. And by manliness, I'm not speaking that we should all raise our sons to be defined the way Nimrod is defined in the book of Genesis. Do you remember how Nimrod is singled out there as you're reading through the list of names. What made him unique or special? He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's not the type of manliness I'm speaking about. I'm talking about a manliness that recognizes the place in God's economy for men, bears that responsibility. I'm not talking about worldly machismo or anything like that. Just recognizing the responsibility that God has called us to as men, particularly as fathers, embracing that and leading a family in that direction. We cannot make the assumptions any longer that everything is just going to turn out okay. Not that it was ever really safe to make that assumption, But the day that we can assume things will just all be all right in the end are long gone. Part of being a father is looking this responsibility square in the eye and taking it upon yourself. Now, not dismissing much grace, much help from the Lord. The spiritual principle of sowing and reaping applies here. We can't just hope against hope that our sons and daughters will raise themselves and everything will be okay in the end. We cannot check out or remove ourselves. I know what it's like to come home hot and tired, exhausted, I often fail right here at this point. I know what it's like to come home and just want to rest and put things in their proper place. But when we look at Scripture, we're told that that's not what a father does. He engages his family at every point. We cannot be deceived. What we sow, we will reap. 
In very large measure, we will reap in this area exactly what we have sown. I am thankful for the intervening grace of God that oftentimes overrules our work or our lack of it. Sometimes it doesn't indeed please God to intervene in that way. But as you look back through history and you study the lives of great gospel men and great gospel women, more often than not, what you find behind them at the, at the beginning of them is that they had fathers and mothers who invested in them, who denied themselves and poured themselves into their children. If God has given you a child, then there is expectation placed upon you. The job description is posted in Scripture. Ephesians 6, 4, And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training or the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Part of what it means to provoke a child is to not do that. You're provoking them to wrath if you're not instructing and training them in the things of the Lord. Now I realize, dads, thankfully we are not in this alone. The Lord has given us wives to help. Let me speak very briefly to the wives and the mothers and to the influential women in the life of a children. It is right for you to lovingly It is right for you to graciously remind your husband of this responsibility and then to pray, pray, and pray for him. That he will take the responsibility that God has placed on him. But be gracious. He will often fail. There is grace for him and help for him in his time of need. And young ladies in the room. Those of you who are seeking a husband, find one that will shoulder the responsibility given him to lead you in a family if the Lord so chooses to give you one. And lastly, before we get into Psalm 63, older men in the room, the younger generation needs you. The younger generation needs you desperately. Too often we have failed in not making ourselves available and for modeling biblical manhood for them. You know, one of the sad realities, and this has been spoken of for a couple of decades now, one of the sad realities in contemporary Christianity is that far too many of the children raised in church leave the church and do not continue on their own. May God be pleased to help us raise children in His fear and admonish them in the Lord. Now look at Psalm 63. And again, this applies to everyone. Man, woman, boy, girl. The context of this psalm fits the question that I began with. 
And it fits the question in this way. This is a unique psalm in that it's one of the few that actually gives us the context in which it was written. The context is simply this, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah, which would have corresponded to at least two events in his life. Either he was running from Saul or he was running from his own son, Absalom. But either way, either the young king running from Saul or the old king running from his own son finds himself in the wilderness And he is yearning and longing for the sanctuary of God there. So I want you to make this equation before we move on. We find the godly man, David, the man after God's own heart. He's in the wilderness longing for more of the reality of worship, being reminded of the blessing of having close fellowship, all of that has been removed from him. And he felt it very keenly. And most likely for those few weeks that we were not meeting together as a church, you felt that very keenly and you should have. It should have been a great distress to your soul. It should have been a great distress to your mind and your heart because you had been removed from that aspect of Christian life that God says is essential in the life of a Christian. It is necessary in the life of a Christian. It is not something we tack on nicely to our Christian life. It is something that very much dictates our Christian life. And without this aspect of body life, we are very much hindered in our walk with the Lord. So let's read Psalm 63, and then I have three, three things I want to bring to your attention. A Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you, or earnestly will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. In a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing on your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to find the encouragement that is needed. 
Help us find the comfort that is needed. Help us heed the rebukes as they come. We know in all things your word is profitable for us as being your very breathed out word. We pray you would help us in Christ's name. Amen. The first point that I want to make is that there should be no doubt that the Lord is our God. There should be no doubt that the Lord is your God. If you, as a father, are wanting to set the tone in your family to live in a countercultural type of way, there must be no doubt in your children's mind that the Lord is your God. Now let's make another application, general application to everyone in the room. If you want to be used of God in any relationship, used of God to the greatest degree of usefulness, then there must be no doubt in your own mind or in the minds of those around you that the Lord is your God. Remember the context, David's in the wilderness, removed from everything comfortable, removed from worship in a corporate sense. And what he says here, in the midst of that trial, in the midst of what we might call heartache, which very often a trial of this degree would drive someone away from God. But here we find David saying, Oh God. And I think with those two words, we understand the, the depth of feeling, the depth of, we might even call it passion that David feels here. We would understand the earnestness that has gripped him when he says, Oh God, you are my God. William Plummer commenting on this verse, he says, It is no new thing. For a good man or a good woman to be driven to the wilderness and deprived of comfort of the society and of the goods other people may bring them in the enjoyment of God's ordinances. It is no strange thing for Christian people to live in the so-called wilderness. You've recognized, I know you have, that very increasingly we are living the wilderness life. When Scripture says that we are pilgrims sojourning through this land, we are increasingly feeling the strangeness of our surroundings. The line of demarcation or distinction is becoming very clear. It used to be blurred. When I was a kid, the line was blurred. And it was hard to tell godly from ungodly because godliness seemed to permeate the environment. But that line is is very clear and very distinct. And let me say, it's only going to get more clear and distinct. This should not surprise us. Neither should it drive us to despair. It doesn't need to drive us to the question that I introduced this sermon with. 
But what it does need to drive us to is more dependence upon God and more resolution that we will do what we've been called to do in Scripture unto the glory of God and with His help. You've read this many times, I'm sure. Hebrews chapter 11. We call it the Faith Hall of Fame, or you may refer to it by some other name, but you get down into the last part of that 11th chapter. After we get past the names that are well known and their experiences, we get down to those no names of the faith. But it's in those no names of the faith that some of the greatest works and marks of faithfulness come out. Let me just read you two verses out of Hebrews 11. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom... The world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. These were wilderness people as well, in a very real sense, weren't they? Living in caves, living in the mountains, living in deserts, because they were the outcasts of society, but not just outcasts, they were heavily scorned and ridiculed because of their faithfulness to God. They were scorned and ridiculed because there was no doubt in anyone's mind that was around them that the Lord was their God. And that brought upon them great consequence, didn't it? Just as it does us, if we are known to be a people whose God is the Lord, then be ready to bear the consequence. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be driven to despair by it. Just see it for what it is and move on with the Lord's help. Notice that David says this, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. Notice how he describes the place where he is in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. And I realize that's a physical description of a physical place, the wilderness, the desert. But I think there's also a spiritual connotation to this as well. Increasingly, the world around you and me is going to prove itself to be a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. There is going to be nothing from which to draw any real sustenance from the world around you. There never has been, really, spiritually speaking. But as I said before, that blurred line of godly and ungodly has become very clear. But I want you to notice the earnestness in David. And it's really amazing as we read the the situation that he is still this drawn to the Lord. He says, early. New American Standard translates the word earnestly. These are the evidences of God being our God. Earnestly, I will seek you. 
Let me just pause and ask everyone in the room a question. I've included myself in this question throughout the week. Is it true of you that you are earnestly seeking the Lord? And obviously I'm not looking for a verbal answer or even a nod of the head. I realize this question best settles upon us in the depth of our heart, doesn't it? Are we earnestly seeking the Lord? Is our soul thirsting for God? Is our flesh? Notice there seems to be an equation to some degree of soul thirst and flesh thirst. Probably because of the refreshment that comes from being in the presence of the Lord and in the presence of the Lord's people. All things considered here, David is, is giving his earnest desire for God who is his God. Now you've answered that question one way or another in your own heart. Are you earnestly seeking the Lord? Now here's the piercing part of this question. Is it evident to your children? Is it evident to your wife? Is it evident to your co-workers? Is it evident to your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord? Are you earnestly seeking the Lord? Or has your context or circumstance, whatever it is, has it made you distance yourself from the Lord and His people, which we're getting to in the next point, or has it drawn you in? Are these things clearly and distinctly known about you? Is there any doubt in your mind or anyone else's mind that the Lord is your God? I think it's fairly a safe assumption here. If we're to make any real progress in living for Christ as an individual or leading a family or being a part of a church, that is growing in godliness and living in a countercultural way, then this first point has to be well settled. The Lord is my God. Oh God, you are mine. And what a condescension of the Almighty God to make it a reality that we as His creatures can say, I say this reverently, but you are mine. That's a word of ownership. And possession. You are mine. Let there be no doubt. The Lord is your God. Second part of this. In the second verse. Because of the condition he was in. A dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So. I have looked for you in the sanctuary. I like the New American Standard rendering here again. Thus, I have seen you in the sanctuary. Now, let's be clear what the sanctuary is. It's not a building. It wasn't a tabernacle. It wasn't a temple. We refer to this building sometimes as a sanctuary, but we understand the way we're using that word. The sanctuary that David is speaking of here is the people of God. Even as it is right for us to consider the church, the body of Christ, as being the people, not the building. That's what David is referring to here. And as he finds himself being driven from 
all that is comfortable and from the presence of the people of God. He says, I have looked for you, or again, I have seen you in the sanctuary. So the second point, the blessing and necessity of corporate worship must be upheld. Both of those words are important. The blessing of corporate worship, you all realize how blessed of God you are to be here. To be amongst the people of God. To have common confession, to have this profession upon our our lips that we believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in God the Father. We believe in His Son. We believe all of these great truths about Him, that He was raised from the dead, that He defeated death and hell, that He has ascended into heaven where He sits at the right hand of the Father awaiting that time which only the Father knows when He will be dispatched to gather His church together. Do you realize what a blessing it is to sit amongst other people of like mind and like faith? We often sound a hearty amen to that point, and we should. But let me now remind you of the second word, the necessity. Both are to be upheld. The blessing and the necessity. So let's just deal with a, with a question, an age-old question. You hear it often Can a person be a Christian and not be a faithful church attender? Yes, but a very weak Christian. One that is being disobedient to the scriptures. One that is not fully realizing the great benefits of the church of God. One that is placing themselves in a very dangerous position. I realize, as do you, a person's salvation is bound up entirely in the work of Christ and being united to Him by faith, having the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. But I also read in the Scriptures where Paul says, I've heard of your great love for Christ and His church. I've heard of your great love for the Savior and His people. I see that Paul very often lumps them together so that they cannot be divorced. They cannot be pulled apart regardless of the reasoning that is used. The blessing and necessity of corporate worship must be upheld if you and I are are attempting to, if we are making any real attempt to live in a way that will have an effect on the people around us and to raise up the next generation that will do the same. If we give off the impression by our own relationship to the church that it is not necessary or that it is, it is at best an accessory to the Christian life, then what we've done Unbeknownst to us or not, what we have done is handicapped the next generation. We have removed the sure footing out from under them because we should know by now that the people of God are not an accessory to Christian life. They are a necessity. 
Let me challenge you on this point if you disagree. Go and read your New Testament and count how many times you were told as an individual believer to do something for someone else or one another. Do these things back and forth. How are you going to do that in isolation or alone? Notice what David says is evident in the sanctuary. This is the element of Christian living that you and I cannot experience alone. He says, I have seen your power and your glory. There is something unique about the people of God coming together. We're told one of the unique aspects where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. That doesn't mean that Christ is not with you when you're working on the back 40 all alone. Certainly he is. He's present everywhere all the time. But what it does mean is that he is manifesting himself in a very unique and special way in the assembly and in the meeting of his saints where you cannot experience that type of presence of God anywhere else. And it is a a very real sticking accusation against many churches that this is not known in, to a more real and full degree. And the only reason it's not known is because we don't cultivate it. The only reason that it's not more of our experience in reality is because we do not spend the time in prayer cultivating an atmosphere of corporate worship where the power and glory of God are known. I'm not talking about some mystical, spiritual experience. But you and I know that there is something unique when the Spirit of God comes in power as the Word is being preached. I've read stories and accounts of how Martin Lloyd-Jones would ascend to the pulpit, he would begin to preach, and there would just be a deafening silence fall over this congregation of thousands of people because the Spirit of God was such strong and present there. Or you read of men like George Whitfield, as he would just walk through a crowd, people would just be overcome with a real sense of the presence of God because those men and those around them had spent time cultivating an atmosphere and an environment where the Spirit of God felt at home and he didn't feel grieved. Where it wasn't a strange place. What kind of environment does the Lord bless with his power and glory? It's an environment that is ordered by the Scripture. Whether it be your home, whether it be the corporate meeting of the saints, whether it be a small prayer meeting, no matter what kind of meeting it is, the Lord will manifest His presence in that meeting so long as it is ordered by Scripture. Step outside the boundary of Scripture, invite some other means in, and what you've done is removed yourself from the real expectation of the manifestation of God's power and His glory. David said again, I've seen it. Thus I have seen in the sanctuary. Let me remind you where we are to this point. Be a father, a mother, be anyone. 
more usefulness to the next generation or anyone else around you. First, there must be no doubt that the Lord is your God. Second, the blessing and necessity of corporate worship must be upheld. And then thirdly, lastly, and I'm looking here at verses 3 through 8 of Psalm 63, you have to know for yourself first and then be able to lead others to where they may find true satisfaction. You have to have experienced this for yourself. Where can you be truly satisfied? In Christ alone. Where can your children, your nieces, your nephews, your grandchildren, where can they be truly satisfied with that which is lasting in Christ alone? Look at verse 3. Because your loving kindness is better than life. Loving kindness here is sometimes translated as mercy. Because your mercy is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. Notice David here in the wilderness. He is concerned with the state of his soul. Not with the state of his body. He's concerned with what his soul is feeding on. He is concerned with what his soul is taking in that will nourish him. He says again in this third, fifth verse, My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your, your right hand upholds me. Do you see all of the benefits that flow out into the life of a believer? Loving kindness in verse 3. Mercy to the degree that it appears to be better than life itself. Satisfied, not in body but in soul, by the marrow and fatness of the Spirit and of the truth, resulting in a mouth that is praising with joyful lips. Verse 7, remembering those times when the Lord has been your help, and then the blessed picture of Scripture dwelling under the shadow of the wings of God, in a place of protection, in a place of provision. How could his soul do anything less than in verse 8 follow closely behind a God who has been so good and has made his goodness so apparent? Verse 9, we're not sure if it's Absalom or Saul and his entourage that are seeking the life of David trying to destroy it. But David is certain of their doom. 
And their doom would only be certain so long as their God was not the Lord. We get down to verse 11. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. Up to this point, there's been some great truth that we've been reminded of, but don't miss this last point. There are many in our day, as there has always been, who are speaking lies. There's a coming day when all falsehood, all error, all lying of any degree will immediately be stopped. And truth will reign forever. So in conclusion, how do we answer the question that we began with? Yes. As the Lord wills, we trust, we disciple, we teach, so that there will be a remnant tomorrow should the Lord tarry. Long after we are gone, God willing, this younger generation will stand in our place and say the same things to the next generation until the Lord returns. There is an answer to the perversion of the world. That answer is the gospel of Christ. All wrongs can be made right. All sin forgiven and redeemed. The gospel is very particular, isn't it? It's Christ in my place. Christ bearing all of the wrath of God intended for me. Christ being punished to the point of death, yet overcoming death and hell. Being raised to life. Setting all of the glory that He had with the Father aside for a moment. Entering into His own creation. And He did so willingly, out of love, For a people. My prayer for all of us is that we know this transforming gospel, that we believe it, that we are trusting in Christ alone, that we're moving forward without fear to the praise and honor of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For the truth of your word, Lord, we're thankful to be able to say with David, O God, you are my God. Lord, may it be increasingly so that our our very souls earnestly long and desire you. May we know more 
of the power and glory manifested in your sanctuary that David speaks about. May we glory more in the body of Christ. May we in all things seek to give Christ preeminence and to do those things that we've been instructed to do. Father, help us. Give us more grace, more mercy. Father, we pray for all of the children in this room. Lord, that it would please you in your goodness and in your kindness to awaken them to the good news of Christ. Father, we pray that for every person in the room. Lord, we realize to die outside of Christ is a fearful, horrifying thing. So we appeal to your grace and mercy. Father, we're thankful to be numbered amongst the saints of God this day. We look forward and yearn for that day when you will return and make all things right. And so we close our meeting today with the words of your Apostle John. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.